Hello and welcome to another episode of the Feminifesto podcast. Today, Kirti Jay Kumar is in conversation with Anam Zakaria, a researcher, development professional and educationist with a special interest in oral histories and identity politics. Anam has also studied psychotherapy and has a particular interest in trauma and healing in conflict zones. Her first book, The Footprints of Partition: Narratives of Four Generations of Pakistanis and Indians, was published by Harper Collins Publishers in 2015 and won the KLF German Peace Prize in 2017. Her second book, Between the Great Divide: A Journey into Pakistan Administered Kashmir, was also published by Harper Collins Publishers in 2018. Anam grew up in Lahore and is currently based in Islamabad. I'm super excited to be here. Uh thank you so much Anam for your time and for being here with us. I really look forward to having a phenomenal conversation ahead with you about your books and about your work. So Anam, could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, um your growing years and your education and basically everything that led to what you do today? So, um no firstly thank you so much for having me. Um I grew up in Lahore. Mm-hmm. and i went to school there um and uh, after that i went to university in canada i came back and i started to work with uh, an ngo called the citizens archive of pakistan and i think that's really where the journey um started for me mm-hmm. because you know growing up in punjab um partition has always been something that we spoke about as a family um mm-hmm. and i always heard my family's version of it you know pakistan side of it and i would go to school and i would learn about it in textbooks as well But when I joined the Citizens Archive um, and they asked me to run the oral history program, mm-hmm. that was really when I started to go out and speak to, you know, women and men um, from all social classes, you know, from the city but also outside about their experiences. Mm-hmm. And what that did for me was brought in so much nuance to my own understanding of my family's past, my country's past, you know, my own heritage and history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that was the turning point for me when I thought that. I want to go and I want to explore these narratives people's narratives because they're so different often from um state level narratives and and so that really kind of uh, pushed me into a lot of self learning mm-hmm. um learning how to do oral histories uh working with oral histories uh, my background my academic background is actually in international development um mm-hmm. and you know I took a bunch of courses in history anthropology religion so I always had that kind of interest but I really needed to develop those skills mm-hmm. um and uh, then as I started to do more field work one of the aspects that stuck out for me was you know oral histories are a great medium to to help to allow people to kind of share their experiences but it also has um the danger of pushing people into trauma because mm-hmm. you ask to share such intimate you know uh, details of the life with you yeah. so that really got me thinking about how do i do this more ethically and um i went ahead and i completed a diploma in psychotherapy and counseling mm-hmm. uh with an interest in my interest personal interest is in trauma and healing um in conflict zones yeah. so that's really been my kind of education work uh background a little bit of development i work as an educator as well mm-hmm. therapist um and then i do research do ethnographies work with oral histories that's powerful that's really really powerful and in a day and age where um history plays such a significant role in the way it's used it's certainly a very important area of work so you know when when you're looking at reviving stories and oral histories because like you alluded yourself trauma plays a significant role so 
have you have you personally had to witness that? How did um, how did that play out when you were collecting oral histories? I think trauma plays out in so many different ways, and I think there's a stark difference in interviewing women and interviewing men. Right. Um, what I started to notice when I was you know working on my first book on partition was that when I would go to women, um, they would often really discount their own experiences. Mm-hmm. So they would say, why are you here to talk to me? Why don't you go and speak to my husband? He was outside. He can tell you more. It was almost as if, you know, they had, not everybody, I don't want to generalize it, but a lot of women had um, started to see themselves as bystanders of history, as spectators of history, which is far from the truth. And so, you know, what I also started to notice was that not only was there discounting, but there was also a silence uh, that accompanied these interviews more so than it did with men. And I uh, began to understand that women often speak in silences and they often express their trauma in silences. It becomes a way for them to cope mm. with what happened. It's just that long pause right. because words that can explain what they've been through. And as societies, we haven't really come to terms, you know, with, um, with kind of allowing women, you know, um, but not just allowing, but like basically creating the space for them to come forward and share the stories because so many of these partition stories have been linked to concepts of honor. Right. So it's been something that we'd rather not talk about. And when society doesn't talk about it, then it starts to impact you at an individual level too. So I think silences became a very important component of it. Um, I think that at other times, you know, women and men would just pour out the whole story at once. And I I recall interviewing this lady in in Lahore and she spoke about, you know, all that she saw in the refugee camps in Delhi. Mm. And after I left, she actually fainted. And that was, uh, this was when I was working with the Citizens Archive, you know, so it was an organizational interview, but we kind of realized, you know, we need to be very, very careful. We need to be very sensitive because this trauma is very much ongoing for people. Um, when I was working in, in Kashmir uh, more recently, you know, with the mortar shelling that goes on across the line of control, it particularly impacts women, again, more so than men, because a lot of times men have um, gone into the cities. Mm-hmm. For, to find work and it's women who are left behind to look after livelihood to look after livestock and children and so forth mm-hmm. and so in, interestingly enough you know they've, they've built so much trauma but they've also become these the strong force of like peacekeeping and resilience and I'm sitting with them you know they're in one moment they're telling me about having to pick up pick up chopped up body parts of their children another moment they're telling me you know how they organize these protests and these marches so I think trauma and healing and these very indigenous forms of healing um, they come through in multiple ways um, and and very like I said there's, there's quite a difference between how women experience it remember it tell it share it or not share it and how men do indeed indeed and that's extremely insightful um considering that that this narrative appears to have played out almost everywhere world over right if you looked at say rwanda post-genocide or even east timor after their struggle for independence it's, it's very interesting that the women have been the ones that have had to face the major brunt of the violence and and therefore the, that trauma has had to be addressed but has seldom been addressed um, speaking of that do you think Trauma keeps conflict alive, violent conflict alive. And, and what are we missing? Why are we not addressing or healing trauma as we should be? I, mean, I think when, uh, when it's ongoing, the trauma is also ongoing. And um, in terms of state level policies or in terms of you know, larger um, initiatives that happen, we are focusing on 
the political aspect of it. And maybe there'll be some rehabilitation in terms of, you know, war destroyed schools, we need to rebuild mm. Homes, but we're not really recognizing the psychological impact. There's some work on it. Some people are doing fantastic work, mm-hmm. but as as you know, at the state level, at the nation level, and this is not just for Pakistan. I'm speaking across the board. Yeah. I think that recognition of the psychological trauma, of this nuance of how women experience it, how there's a gendered way of experiencing conflict, right. how children experience it, we're not dealing with it. We haven't even come to terms with that idea. So, you know, a lot of times these narratives that I'm hearing, I've never heard anywhere before. I've never really heard them be part of mainstream discourse. So I think very much, you know, the trauma, um, even when the conflict has ended, the trauma remains ongoing. Mm. It's not addressed. People have to cope with it in their own ways and, and people are resilient. You know, they find their ways of coping. But there is so much there's so much emotional scarring and, and it's intergenerational. So then you have children inheriting it, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and that can have all kinds of repercussions, of course. Yeah. So I think there's a huge void. Um, and, uh, and, and I think when something so, so big as partition happens, one, one of the aspects of it is like, it happened to everybody. Right. So it's like, if everybody's moving on, we all need to too. So there's this almost collective moving on but there's also this collective trauma that's uh, that's carrying that people are carrying with them, and uh, we just don't talk about it. We just we don't talk about those aspects. We only talk about the political aspects of it. We only talk about you know war and and, and high level kind of macro level um, policy making and how it informs that. We're forgetting that there are real people involved and and real people struggles and you know how how is it that they're becoming the backstory mm. and not the not you know not right the narratives are not at the fore interesting that's a very very interesting observation and, and also very well informed in terms of how you explained the gendered and the child component of how war is experienced and i guess that sort of feeds into what uh Vamik Volkan talks about which is how there's this concept of a chosen trauma, and that's the politics of trauma that is then sort of used to keep the root of conflict alive. Um, but let's let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about your book, Footprints of Partition, which documents these narratives. What was your experience like putting these these stories together? Um, it was it was I think an incredible experience, and I really say you know this was an unlearning journey for me. Mm earlier you know I had my own understanding or narrative of partition um, and here I am talking to people who actually survived it and I'm realizing that there is no one narrative mm. that partition experiences need to be seen on a spectrum where you know stories of rescue where you know opposite communities risk their lives to rescue each other yeah. and stories of violence often coexist mm-hmm. and people have experienced both but when, you know, as, as we move further and further from partition, we forget those nuances and we tend to tell the story in a very packaged way, in a very one-sided way. So a lot of these interviews were actually about me going to people and, and trying to understand what partition really meant for them mm-hmm. and, and, you know, unlearn what I had, 
what I had learned uh, through textbooks, through mainstream discourse, through media debates. Um, and what I wanted to really do was find stories that are often not shared. So stories of rescue, mm -hmm. stories of people longing to or being able to go back home, mm -hmm. um, stories of army officers, you know, who on one hand um, defend their countries, but on the other hand have their ancestral home across the border. Mm -hmm. So what's that relationship like between home and enemy? Uh, but I also wanted to really look at the memory of partition. So how is the narrative shifting? Because for me, partition is not something static. Yes. It's not something that happened in 47 when we, we can just move on from it. Right. It's very much an ongoing journey. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to look at, you know, the, the journey of partition after 47. So I interviewed people in India and Pakistan, more so in Pakistan, just because of logistical reasons. Um, and I tried to... Um, see how how has the narrative shifted over four generations mm. so the oldest person i interviewed uh, was 112 and the youngest was nine mm. so there's this kind of stark age uh, difference and a very stark difference in terms of how partition is interpreted how it's been appropriated how it's remembered mm. how it's shared and the selective versions of partition that come forth and how they generate different emotions on both sides of the border so you know i would find um, nostalgia to be more so on the Indian side. Um, and that's something that you have to search for a little bit on the Pakistani side because it's linked to Pakistan's creation. So how do these you know, state level narratives about nationalism, about patriotism start to impact personal memories? What do we choose to remember? What do we choose to share? Mm. Wow, that was, that was immensely powerful. And what, what I'm also hearing is that you're doing this work as a bit of a combination of both your experience and knowledge of development studies with a suffusion of psychotherapy. Do you, do you find yourself being drawn to bridging the two in your work every day? Is there, is there a need for more development professionals to take on the, um, you know, some sort of an understanding of psychotherapy or at least of trauma in the work that they do? I think so. And I think before anything else, we need to um, really go back and understand what we mean by development because increasingly it's being equated with just economic development mm -hmm. uh, when we use the term generically it's it's referring to infrastructure um, right. you know and so forth but development is so much more than that you know it's about people people need to be at the center of any work that you do and in order to keep people at the center you need to go out and 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 engage with people mm. and let them tell you their stories we have to stop being experts on other people's lives and and so i think we need to move away from these you know one size fits all um development projects these top-down development projects and really go into the communities and understand what life looks like for them mm -hmm. and i it's not necessary that you know everybody kind of um is a psychotherapist who goes in and does it but just kind of being more sensitive mm -hmm. as anthropologists you know as development workers um as people who are just interested in in, in helping communities uh improve you know, they're alive, mm -hmm. uh, we need to be more engaged right. and we need to connect and we need to be sensitive and more than anything, we need to be ethical. Mm -hmm. Because even when I go in and my, my, you know, the way I bridge it really is, for me, development means, it's, it means peace. Right. And in order to have peace, we need to understand what does conflict mean, uh -huh. right? So I try to look at it that way, but I am also very cognizant of the fact that here I am going into these communities, hearing these stories, and I have the luxury and the privilege to walk away. Yeah. Those people, this is their life. 
Mm-hmm. So how do I ethically, you know, probe and make sure that I'm sharing the stories with a larger audience so we can try to bring about change while not exploiting it mm-hmm. or not getting them into any kind of trouble or not triggering trauma. Mm-hmm. So I think those are important conversations that we need to start having mm-hmm. because storytelling can be traumatic mm-hmm. and even recording stories can be traumatic. Right. Um, so that's something we need to pay more attention to. Right. Right. Speaking about the cautious side one has to uh, perhaps take when while taking on storytelling, uh, you know, there's a larger benefit as well associated with storytelling, right? The, the, it has been, or it has been proven as a tool that has helped reduce trauma, that has helped bring communities together. Is, is that something you've also seen happen alongside, of course, a very, very prudent reason for caution? Have you also seen this play out? Yes. Absolutely. I think um, talking does help. Uh, not in all cases, not always. Some people choose not to talk and that's the way of coping and you have to respect that. Right. Uh, but a lot of times I've noticed that, you know, the community will, will speak and share with each other mm-hmm. and sometimes they will laugh about it and they will cry about it together and there's this community spirit. They all come together and they fight together. Right. And that's really, it's, it's, it's so, um, it's really beautiful to see that mm-hmm. in a way. Some people come together through their common shared pain mm-hmm. and, and by talking about it, by sitting with other people who've been through it, who, who understand it, who, who live through it with you, they come up with ways of surviving. Yeah. Right? So what does it mean to survive conflict, especially when it's ongoing? Mm-hmm. And I think women tend to do this really beautifully. They really come together as this close-knit community um, and they fight together. And when women come together, I really feel like, you know, um, nothing can stop them in many ways. And I know it sounds idealistic, Mm -hmm. but the kind of, you know, women I've come across and the work they do, um, it is mind blowing. You know, I cannot imagine anybody, any, any of any gender in, you know, place like Islamabad or Lahore or Delhi, Mumbai, do the kind of things that they do sometimes living in the midst of war. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Right. Right. That was, that was stunning to listen to. Thank you very much for sharing that, Anam. Um, and what I'm interested in asking you at this point is, we focus a lot on the storytelling process. Uh, how do you receive, uh, you know, how do you, how do you tell these stories? How do you um, give them the enabling environment they need to tell these stories? But what of the listeners? What should a listener do to consume and receive these stories with empathy? We, we somehow seem to leave that out of the narrative sometimes. So maybe some thoughts on that would be really helpful. Yeah, I think this was, again, a learning process for me because, you know, when I initially started doing the partition uh, work and I was going and interviewing people, um, I did not realize that I was a very selective listener. Mm-hmm. So often when they would be talking about violence, because it fit into my understanding and the larger framework through which I saw partition, yeah. I was ever attentive. But when people would mention the name of a Hindu or Sikh friend, or they would mention, you know, let's say Diwali celebrations in Lahore, mm-hmm. um, or they would talk about a rescue story, of course, I would listen, but somehow I would register them as mere exceptions. Ah. And I would, you know, kind of want to move on to what I saw as the real story. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was through the course of doing this work as I became more aware that I realized that I'm doing this. And I started to go back to those audios and listen again. That was a very important process because here were these 
this amazing, rich, you know, um, narrative that people are sharing with me, these nuances people are sharing, and I'm just kind of brushing them aside because they don't fit into my, um, you know, my framework. So I had to then go back. And so I think sometimes it's really important to stay with the stories, listen to them again. If you're, if you're writing it by hand, then go visit your notes and meet those people again. Because these narratives also dynamic the shift, the time and place affects it, who else is sitting in the room affects it, your mood, their mood, you know, so you, you want to be able to, as much as possible, really, really listen to what they're saying and try to put your own biases and prejudices, not easy, it's always going to be a subjective experience, mm -hmm. but, but just try to open yourself up to the idea that maybe I don't know, let's hear what they have to say. That's beautiful. Really, really yeah. That's really beautiful. I mean, it, it then sends home the fact that so many of us have to start by learning to say that we don't know things and just learning to acknowledge that we have so much more to learn. But that's, that's a powerful thing. Thank you for sharing your personal unlearning to learning journey as well in the process. Um, Anam, could you tell us a little bit about the Exchange for Change project? You've been involved in that for a while, right? Uh, yeah, so actually, um, this was a project launched by the Citizens Archive of Pakistan, mm -hmm. which is a, a Pakistani NGO um, that is working towards preserving our heritage and culture. And so I was, um, I was uh, working at the Lahore and Islamabad office, and we partnered with an Indian NGO called Roots to Roots mm -hmm. in Delhi, mm -hmm. um, and we connected students. So we connect, I think in the first round, uh, we had about, if I'm not wrong, around 2,400 students on both sides of the border that engaged in a 12 month program, uh, which had different phases. So you had letters that students are writing to each other, dear friend letters, trying to really get to know, um, you know, who lives on the other side of the border and also sharing their hobbies and their interests and their, you know, academic pursuits and so forth. Mm -hmm. Then we had a phase with postcards. So sending pictorial, you know, um, Im images basically to each other to give um, each other a visual um, glimpse into their lives. Then we had a collage series on things like weddings and festivals and food. Um, and then finally, a few students were actually able to cross the border. So about 12 students in the first round uh, went from Pakistan to India. And then we had about 12 students come in from uh, India to Pakistan. And so this pro uh, program had uh, um, you know, a couple of cycles. I was with them between 2000 and 2013. Mm -hmm. um, and later they also expanded the project to Pakistan and the US. And the really, the goal has been, you know, allowing children to learn about the other through the other. And trying to, you know, help move beyond common misunderstandings and misconceptions. Mm -hmm. um, and, and to celebrate um, our, our similarities and to appreciate our differences. Mm -hmm. And then to get that connection and that dialogue going. So that's the idea behind the project. Um, Citizens Archive, uh, you know, I'm not with them anymore, but they're still doing incredible work, amazing work. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's exchange between. That's amazing. And that's, that's an enormous scale with 2,400 young minds being changed. That's, that's looking at a bit of a generational change, if you will, even in the larger scheme of things. So thank you. Thank you for facilitating and being part of that. Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic initiative. And you know, now um, that I'm not with Citizens Archive, I don't have the organizational support, so it's not possible to do it at large scale. But I, I try to run Skype conversations between students mm -hmm. whenever possible. Mm -hmm. And you that, that, that change, what you're talking about, you know, it's transformative. You have students, you know, saying we don't want to talk to each other. 
and like 10 minutes into the conversation saying, when are we doing this again? And I'm not exaggerating. I also sometimes uh, connect myself with Indian students. And mm -hmm. one of the most powerful, um, I think, interactions I've had was in a school in Mumbai. Um, and after about, you know, let's say 40 minute to one hour conversation, this one child got up and she said, now I know not all Pakistanis are murderers. I can think of going there too. Yes. That was so powerful for me. You know, that one hour of dialogue mm -hmm. can do that. So how can we move beyond these stereotypes and really get to see each other as humans? Absolutely, absolutely. Anam, I'm going to take a tiny little deviation here and share a little bit with you and with our listeners. Um, your book, Footprints uh, of Partition, living here in Chennai, I live in the south of India in Chennai, which is to a large extent still very displaced from the partition narrative. It, it does form a part of the historical understanding of where India's you know, journey through independence and to the present follows, but it's not as perhaps as hot a nerve as it is in the northern part of India. And yet there's a sense of demonization of Pakistan that happens where young people are no longer able to see peace with Pakistan as beyond the cricket uh, field. So when I took your book to a classroom, um, looking at ninth and 10th graders, and I told them that they should consider buying themselves a copy and reading the book, uh, some of them said, is, was it written by a Pakistani? How did you get it into India? So there was already a sense of things by Pakistani people are not allowed in India. So that kind of a belief already started existing at some point in their minds. So when I broke it down and I said, you want to know something? The author is a friend of mine. And then I proceeded to tell them how um, I had the opportunity of sharing your story on the Red Elephant's website. And it was a huge curtain lifted and they said, are you, are you serious? Can Indian and Pakistani people talk? Is that even possible? <laughs> and then, you know, when I started breaking it down and I told them that they should read the book, because then that would tell, you know, and you also did speak to a lot of Indians, a lot of people who live in India for footprints in partition. And so that was a huge switch flipped. And I think in that month, maybe Chennai alone had about 15 to 20 copies of your book selling. I'm not sure uh, if, if some of the books were borrowed among themselves. But when I went back to them the next time, they were in absolute awe and amazement of your writing. Um, of course, in terms of the quality, but also in terms of what your book and those stories did for them that no history textbook anywhere else might be able to do for them. So this transformation is very real and it's way beyond what words could you know potentially articulate so thank you for that resilience that your work brings thank you so much so somebody who's committed to the idea of peace and healing trauma uh, what do you think india and pakistan need to be able to find that space to reconcile and to stay committed to peace yeah, I think, um, Kirti, I think what's been happening is that both India and Pakistan's nation-making process mm -hmm. is based on this idea or is premised on this otherization, this right. dehumanization of the other. So, for example, you know, India is everything Pakistan is not economically, um, you know, defining India image. And, and then when it comes to Pakistan, you know, Pakistan sees itself as, in, as everything India is not. So Pakistan is Muslim. It is pure or Pak. 
and and on the other side of the border, you know, they're non-Muslims. That's I'm I'm talking about the popular imagination and the narratives that are, are kind of taught to us. Um, and what happens in that process is that we don't really um, talk about history. We talk more about ideologies, and these are very selective ideologies. Mm -hmm. And what the younger generations are learning are these selective ideologies rather than a holistic understanding of our shared past, mm -hmm. as complicated as it may be. In fact, we try to simplify things too much. And I have a problem with that because the truth or reality is not so simple. It's increasingly complicated. Like I said, you know, you will have stories of rescue and you will have stories of violence coexisting in every single community engaged in that. So I think the biggest kind of um, step is, is allowing um, in, you know, each other, allowing ourselves to humanize each other. I think that's the key thing, but also being comfortable with the uncomfortable truths from our past. Mm -hmm. and, and starting to share more holistically. And this, I feel, is a very urgent need because we're losing the generation that remembers those nuances. I know it's, it seems strange that the younger generations would harbor more hostility and antagonism, mm -hmm. but when you see the partition survivors, one of the things that you realize is that even though they suffered so much and they lost family members, and many of them are bitter, they also remember a time when the other was not the other. Right. And I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to point towards some rosy past where everything was perfect, mm -hmm. but I'm trying to point towards a time where there was a mutual coexistence. Mm -hmm. There was a codependence. But the younger generations, you know, don't have that, especially in Pakistan. We don't come across um, Hindus or Sikhs. 76% yeah. of Pakistanis are going to Gallup, Pakistan. I think that's the figure. It's over 70% have never met an Indian. So they become these figments of our imagination. Right. And if you want to change that, we need to allow, uh, you know, we need to let holistic history flourish. We need to have more dialogue. We need to connect more because like you were just saying, the minute you introduce the idea that Indians and Pakistanis can be friends mm -hmm. or that, you know, not all Pakistanis hate Indians and vice versa, something else starts to take birth. And that process is so important. So I think both India and Pakistan need to get comfortable with that idea. It's a very powerful thought and it's a great strategy actually to um, sort of bring both sides together on one uniform platform. So your latest book also alludes to that somehow, right? Between the Great Divide. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so this book actually came about as a result of a, a vacation that mm. I took. Um, you know, I've always, uh, I grew up hearing about this part of Kashmir, Pakistan, administered Kashmir, um, because I had I knew people from there, and I always wanted to visit. But as I was growing up, it was it was this place which was almost forbidden, mm -hmm. because uh, in the '90s, which is when I was growing up, there was there was heavy mortar shelling, and um, you you really couldn't enter. And then the 2003 uh, ceasefire happened, but it was followed too quickly by the 2005 earthquake. And again, you know, the life that people were just starting to rebuild was was completely, I mean, it was threatened, it was demolished, infrastructure was destroyed, people lost their homes, schools and everything. Yeah. And so over the last few years, they've been trying to uh, recover. The tourism industry has started to grow uh, uh, as well. And so I was taking advantage of that really, and I wanted to go see Neelam Valley because I've heard so much about it. Mm -hmm. But once I went and I started to talk to people, mm -hmm. um, what I started to realize was that the Kashmir conflict has had serious repercussions of this side of the line of control. Mm -hmm. And I wanted 
to go back and I wanted to read about it and I wanted to maybe see documentaries or films about it. But I didn't find much, especially not in English. And unfortunately, you know, that's the language I am most comfortable with. And I started to think, why is this happening? And I went back and I spoke to women and I spoke to refugees, you know, and, and I spoke to um, just children growing up um, on the line of control. And I began to realize that conflict has had serious repercussions. We don't know about them. And if we don't bring this part of Kashmir into the fold of discussion, we cannot move towards any conflict resolution because these are stakeholders. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, when we think of Kashmir, the focus ends up being on the valley and that's understandably so because that's where most of the violence has been. Mm-hmm. But when we are talking about resolution, we're talking about the state of Jammu and Kashmir. And the state of Jammu and Kashmir also includes Ladakh and Jammu and the valley and, you know, what is called Azad Kashmir on this side or what is called Gilgit Baltistan. Mm-hmm. Um, so how is it that we're trying to move towards this very top level bilateral, you know, talks that we have, high level policy um, and saying we want to resolve the issue without even hearing about what people are going through on all ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not just internationally, even in Pakistan, most people didn't know about these stories. I did not know about them. For example, I did not know about the refugees mm-hmm. who live here. I just found it so important to go and speak to them. And this book is really just a small effort to share their grievances, the way they um, survive conflict and what their aspirations are. That's powerful. That's really powerful. And so on that note where you talked about um, what their aspirations are, there's so much about how everybody else has an idea of what's right for Kashmir. And when I say everybody else, I literally mean everybody else. People don't have anything whatsoever to do with the people of Kashmir or what's happening there. So having collected stories, having met with people, having spoken to them, what is your understanding of what the Kashmiri people want and what they're feeling about what's happening? I think, again, it's also important to not, um, to try not to box all Kashmiri people mm. in this um, because they, there are different aspirations uh, and they're different grievances. Mm-hmm. Um, the term Kashmiri is also interesting because traditionally it's been understood as only linked to um, ethnic Kashmiris, you know, right. to the language. Uh, right. But then you also have other people that I've met, you know, who say, no, we are Kashmiri in the political sense. So mm-hmm. firstly, it's also important to understand what do we mean when we say Kashmiri. Mm-hmm. Um, easy to dismiss people not from the values, not Kashmiri, but that's not the reality for them. They see themselves linked to the conflict and they see that a very important part of their identity. But even within this, you know, Kashmiri identity, you have multiple kind of perspectives. for instance, when I was working with the refugees, because they crossed over, a lot of them, the ones I spoke to, they crossed over from the Indian administered part in the 1990s, mm-hmm. and half of their families or their homes are still you know, on the other side. Mm-hmm. So for them, um, the, the need to continue the struggle for independence is very important. Yeah. But when I spoke to the women you know, who belong to this side, who, who have suffered in a sense the most, because they're right on the line of control, mm-hmm. um, there's been so much more to shelling, they say, you know, we're, we're, we are tired of the struggle we just want peace so there's also you can say this tension between the demands you know and then what does what does peace or what does independence look like so that's a different question you know what does independence really mean what do what do people want um, so I think the multiple voices and multiple narratives mm-hmm. and what's been happening is that because we think we know what Kashmiris want we tend to impose mm-hmm. um, our understanding of what they need on them uh, but instead, we need to really kind of sift through those macro level narratives and, and hear people and it's diverse. Like I think the one thing I realized working in Kashmir is the more you know, the less you know, it's, it's very complicated. 
there are multiple voices. So I think the learning is let's let's not trying to let's not try to see it in black and white um, and broad brush strokes. That's a very very wise view of things, considering that there's so much that's happened over time, and an oversimplification is absolutely dangerous. Thank you for sharing that, Anand. It was a very very beautiful exposition. My my pleasure. Yeah, but I think I think just uh, one more thing to add. You know. If there was one thing that they wanted, it's it's normalcy yeah. um, to return to their lives. I think everybody just wants that. They want stability. Mm -hmm. It is so vulnerable. And I'm talking about this part of Kashmir, which is not even seen yes. as the problem. Uh, but it is so vulnerable and it is so volatile. Peace is so uncertain. You don't know when the firing is going to become. You don't know when India-Pakistan relations are going to sour and you know the repercussions it's going to have on the line of control mm -hmm. just the feeling of not knowing you know even when i was there over a brief period you know when when firing had escalated i felt that uncertainty like what if it happens right now and then i realized these people live with that all the time right. every single day so what does that do to somebody what is the psychological impact of that i think they crave the return to some kind of normalcy and stability um, which is a fundamental human right. Mm. They deserve that. They deserve that, absolutely. So onward to um, the last question before we finish up with today's session. Uh, what words of advice would you like to share with peace builders or people in the development sector who are probably starting off at this point? Yeah, I think um, I think it's what I said earlier, um, because that's been the most important lesson uh, for me, that we have to be willing to unlearn. You know, we often we often treat knowledge, we often treat work as something that if, if we can consume it, then we're experts on it, and then we can just go deliver and implement and bring change, and it doesn't happen like that. The more work you do, the more you will realize how much you don't know um, and how much more there is to, uh, is to really learn. Um, I think it's also really important to move beyond theoretical frameworks. Mm -hmm. They help, they guide you, but in practical terms, when you're doing peace building work or you're doing any kind of development work with communities, um, you, cannot, you cannot box them into these frameworks. You have to allow them to tell you their story. Their story is the only story that is important to listen to. Um, and you know, their ideas of what they want and how, what kind of change they want is, is what we need to listen to as peace builders, as development workers. And we need to remember that we're dealing with real people. These are not just, because a lot of times, and the reason I'm saying this is because a lot of time policies get made in big urban centers mm -hmm. and implemented across the board um, in all areas. And it's assumed that everybody needs the same kind of facilities, everybody feels a certain way, and that can't be far from the truth. Mm -hmm. So we need to firstly go and, and, and listen, and especially record lesser known stories and narratives, mm -hmm. or at least listen to them and hear them out and, and then plan. Um, and always be ready to not know and to learn. Wise words there, Anam. Absolutely beautiful. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your time and for all, the, all that you shared with us. I'm sure our listeners are going to have a great time. For our listeners, anybody who would like to pick up Anam's books, head over to Amazon. You just have to Google or Amazon um, Anam's name. That's A-N-A-M. Z-A-K-A-R-I-A. -A -A. You'll also find the links along with her bio in the description. Feel free to indulge because these books will definitely change your mind. Thank you, Anam. Thank you so much for having me.